Chapter Nine of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Crake. Chapter Nine. Mrs. Rothsay, touched by an impulse of regretful tenderness, showed all due respect to the memory of the faithful woman who had nursed with such devotion her husband and her child. For a whole long week Olive wandered about the shut-up house, the formal solemnities of death, now known for the first time, falling heavily on her young heart. Alas, that there was no one to lift it beyond the terrors of the grave to the sublime mysteries of immortality. But the child knew none of these, and therefore she crept, awestruck, about the silent house, and when night fell, dared not even to pass near the chamber, once her own and Elspie's, now death's. She saw the other members of the household enter there with solemn faces, and pass out, carefully locking the door. What must there be within? Something on which she dared not think, and which nothing could induce her to behold. At times she forgot her sorrow, and, still keeping close to her mother's side, amused herself with her usual childish games, piecing disjointed maps or drawing on a slate, but all was done with a quietness sadder than even tears. The evening before the funeral, Mrs. Rothsay went to look for the last time on the remains of her faithful old servant. She tried to persuade little Olive to go with her. The child accompanied her to the door, and then, weeping violently, fled back and hid herself in another chamber. From thence she heard her mother come away, also weeping, for the feeble nature of Sibylla Rothsay had lost none of its tender-hearted softness. Olive listened to the footsteps gliding downstairs, and there was silence. Then the passionate affection which she had felt for her old nurse rose up, driving away all childish fear, and strengthening her into a resolution which until then she had not dared to form. Tomorrow they would take away Elspie, forever. On earth she would never again see the face which had been so beloved. Could she let Elspie go without one look, only one? She determined to enter the awful room now, and alone. It was about seven in the evening, still daylight, though in the darkened house dimmer than without. Olive drew the blind aside, took one long gaze into the cheerful sunset landscape to strengthen and calm her mind, and then walked with a firm step to the chamber door. It was not locked this time, but closed ajar. The child looked in a little way only. There stood the well-remembered furniture. The room seemed the same, only pervaded with an atmosphere of silent, solemn repose. There would surely be no terror there. Olive stole in, hearing in the stillness every beating of her heart. She stood by the bed. It was covered, not with its usual counterpane of patchwork stars, the work of Elspie's diligent hand through many a long year, and on which her own baby fingers had been first taught to sew, but with a large white sheet. She stood, scarce knowing whether to fly or not, until she heard a footstep on the stairs. One minute and it would be too late. With a resolute hand she lifted the sheet, and saw the white fixed countenance, not of sleep, but death. Uttering a shriek so wild and piercing that it rang through the house, Olive sprang to the door, fled through the passage, at the end of which she sank in convulsions. That night the child was taken ill, and never recovered until some weeks after, when the grass was already springing on poor Elspie's grave. It is nature's blessed ordinance, that in the mind of childhood the remembrance of fear or sorrow fades so fast. Therefore, when Oliver gained strength, 
and saw the house now smiling within and without amidst the beauty of early autumn, the horrors of death passed from her mind, or were softened into a tender memory. Perhaps, in the end, it was well for her that she had looked on that poor dead face, to be certain that it was not Elsbie. She never thought of Elsbie in that awful chamber any more. She thought of her as in life, standing knitting by the nursery window, walking slowly and sedately along the green lanes, carrying the basket of flowers and roots collected in their rambles, or sitting in calm Sunday afternoons with her Bible on her knee. And then, passing from the memory of Elsbie once on earth, Olive thought of Elsbie now in heaven. Her glowing imagination idealized all sorrow into poesy. She never watched the sunset, she never looked up into the starry sky at night, without picturing Elsbie as there. All the foibles and peculiarities of her poor old Scottish nurse became transmuted into the image of a guardian invisible, incorporeal, which seemed to draw her own spirit nearer to heaven, with the thought that there was one she loved, and who loved her, in the glorious mansions there. From the time of her nurse's death the whole current of Olive's life changed. It cast no shadow over the memory of the deep affection lost, to say that the full tide of living love now flowed towards Mrs. Rothsay as it had never done before, perhaps never would have done but for Elsby's death. And truly the mother's heart now thirsted for that flood. For seven years the little cloud which appeared when Captain Rothsay returned had risen up between husband and wife, increasing slowly but surely, and casting a shadow over their married home. Like many another pair who wed in the heat of passion, or the willful caprice of youth, their characters, never very similar, had grown less so day by day, until their two lives had severed wider and wider. There was no open dissension that the wicked world could take hold of, to glut its eager eyes with the spectacle of an unhappy marriage, but the chasm was there, a gulf of coldness, indifference, and distrust, which no foot of love would ever cross. Angus Rothsay was a disappointed man. At five-and-twenty he had taken a beautiful, playful, half-educated child, his bride and his darling-to-be, forgetting that at thirty-five he should need a sensible woman to be his trustworthy, sympathizing wife, the careful and thoughtful mistress of his household. When hard experience had made him old and wise, even a little before his time, he came home expecting to find her old and wise, too. The hope failed. He found Sibylla as he had left her, a very child. Ductile and loving as she was, he might even then have guided her mind, have formed her character, in fact have made her anything he liked. But he would not do it. He was too proud. He brooded over his disappointed hope in silence and reserve, and though he reproached her not, and never ceased to love her in his own cold way, yet all respect and sympathy were gone. Her ways were not his ways, and was it the place of a man and a husband to bend? After a few years of struggling, less with her than with himself, he decided that he would take his own separate course and let her take hers. He did so. At first she tried to win him back, not with a woman's sweet and placid dignity of love, never failing, never tiring, yet invisible as a rivulet that runs through deep green bushes, scarcely heard and never seen. Sibylla's arts, the only arts she knew, were the whole armory of girlish coquetry, or childish wile, passionate tenderness and angry or sullen reproach, alternating each other. Her husband was equally unmoved by all. He seemed a very rock, indifferent to either sunshine or storm. And yet it was not so. 
He had in his nature deep, earnest, abiding tenderness, but he was one of those people who must be loved only in their own quiet, silent way. A hard lesson for one whose every feeling was less a principle than an impulse. Sibylla could not learn it. And thus the happiness of two lives was blighted, not from evil or even lack of worth in either, but because they did not understand one another. Their current of existence flowed on coldly and evenly, in two parallel lines which would never, never meet. The world beheld Captain Rothsay in two phases, one as the grave, somewhat haughty but respected master of Merivale Hall, the other as the rash and daring speculator, who was continually doubling and trebling his fortune by all the thousand ways of legal gambling in which men of capital can indulge. There was in this kind of life an interest and excitement. Captain Rothsay rushed to it, as many another man would have rushed to far less sinless means of atoning for the dreary blank of home. In Mrs. Rothsay the world only saw one of its fairest adornments, one of those charming women who make society so agreeable. Beautiful, kind-hearted, at least as much so as her thoughtless life allowed, lively, fond of amusement, perhaps a little too much, for it caused people to note the contrast between the master and the mistress of the hall, and to say what no wife should ever give the world reason to say, Poor thing! I wonder if she is happy with her husband. But between those two stood the yet scarce recognized tie which bound them together, the little deformed child. End of chapter 9